Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. We're going to be talking about experiencing God's joint relationship. Some of you may think, well, this sounds repetitive. I think that's what you talked about the last two times you were here. That's good memory. It is. <laughs> Um, I want to move on to something else, but this this is really stuck with me, and I think for a reason. And we didn't we covered Isaiah fifty five about I don't know four weeks ago, but we didn't get to the part where it's about inviting others to join us in the joy. And in my mind, the last two times I spoke here are all related, so it's going to be related in your mind whether you want it to or not. So. So I'm going to, to a verse that I shared, I think, about two weeks ago, maybe three. But because of his great love for us, the context of this is in Ephesians 1, God makes a point that you really didn't get saved when you thought you experienced it. He made a point of before the casting out of the cosmos, is the literal Greek, before he even made the universe, he saw what his creation would be. That God, in a plural, Elohim is plural, God and the plurality of Father, Son, Holy Spirit were enjoying community. And they enjoyed it so much, they wanted more family. So they decided to create the universe for a place for family. And before he created it, God could foresee even the ways it would go south. And would foresee even what it would cost him with his son. And he looked at it and decided were worth it. He decided for his good pleasure, it was worth it. And it says before even the casting out of the cosmos, he foresaw us and decided for his good pleasure, he sees us as blameless. He already made up his mind to see us as blameless and spotless in his sight. And then to build this praise, this, this people. And it goes on about the glory and supremacy of Christ. It says the fullness of Christ dwells in us corporately as a church. And it's amazing. But then he wants to emphasize what it's based on is not us. So he makes a big point that while we were actually dead in sins, while we were actually enemies, God moved in his plan. So because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us up us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show off the incomparable riches of his grace. And when I did this before, we, we actually did the, the literal version. And that, that incomparable is often called transcendent. What it really is literally is it's the word over and cast put together. So today we don't have overcast, but we often do. And overcast means it's something that completely covers everything. It transcends means like when we have our, our foggy days, when we say it's a full overcast sky, it means nowhere is the sky not covered in cloud. So in this overcast riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Okay, I'm going with a literal version, so it won't read quite as easy as other ones. For in grace, through faith, trust, are you saved. And this is not of you. It is God's approach present, not of works, lest anyone should be boasting. For his achievement are we, 
being created in Christ for good works, which makes him ready before, which he makes ready beforehand, that we should be walking in them. I, I put in there the literal is approach present. It says most translations say it's a gift of God. It is, but the actual term is an approach present. It's only used about six or eight times in the New Testament. An approach present in that culture, and I know I said this three weeks ago, but it bears repeating. If a person, uh, and it would often be if a person of high status, so in a high in their culture, like we know, we know we're all equal in Christ. That wasn't the way anybody thought in the times of Jesus. Uh, the Roman culture, the Greek culture, even the Hebrew culture definitely believed some people were superior to others. And if a person of higher status wanted a relationship with someone in a lower status, they wouldn't just show up at the door and say hi. If they wanted a friendship, they would send a gift to the house. So they'd send their servant with a gift to the house, and the gift would be an approach present. And if the person receiving the gift or see it, saw the gift, he would know, or she would know, this is a gift from this person of a higher status, maybe the governor of the town. And he would know this gift is unconditional. I do nothing to deserve it. But it is not mandatory. It is not forced on me. So I can say yes to the gift without doing anything to earn it. But when I say yes to it, what I am saying yes to isn't just the gift. I'm saying yes to a relationship. So an approach present is a gift given saying, I want a relationship with you. I'm going to repeat the analogy about husbands and wives in, in those cultures, including Jewish culture. There's more to it, but it, once the families were agreed and the parents were agreed, a young man or an older man, a man, would send a gift to a household for the woman he wanted to marry. It'd be a gift for her sent to the household. If the father received it, it was him saying, I'm okay with this. Then the girl gets the present, and it's not forced on her. She doesn't have to receive the present. She does nothing to earn it, but she has the choice does she receive it. And once she receives it, they're betrothed. That is how they are now engaged. And it could actually happen when they're young, so they can be engaged for years. But the whole idea is they're betrothed because he made an approach present. The reason this is so beautiful is because in religious terms, which is where it's usually used in Bible, all the religions of that day, not just Jewish, all the religions of that day talked about approach presence as a gift you bring to an altar. And, and even Jesus, when he talks about, hey, if you have a, a present, you're leaving to, I'm sorry, you have a present, you're bringing to the altar, but you have an issue with someone, leave your present, go, go patch things up relationally, then come back and offer it. That is an approach present. Uh, the gift of the Magi, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That, in scripture, is called an approach present. The interesting thing is in almost every religion, an approach present is what we bring to God to earn favor. And here's what's amazing. Paul's whole point is, while we have nothing to do with God, while we are dead, while we are actually, in other, in other uh, letters he writes, even while we are enemies of his, he sends us the approach gift. Because he's saying it's all flipped over. You know, and Paul goes into detail, like even after Acts, is like he, his mind was very religious until he encounters Jesus, and it changes everything. And one of the big revelations he had is he realized, it's not me bringing a gift to him or doing anything to earn him. The approach present was sent by God to me. God has said, I want a relationship with you. 
And he is giving you a gift of faith as an approach presence saying, I want a relationship with you. And you do nothing to earn it. All you do is decide if you want to receive it. And when you receive it, you're saying yes to a relationship. Okay? But here's the beauty, because this is, this is where I wasn't comfortable with like four spiritual laws. I, I did jail ministry for 20 years. And that would confuse the fact. Because everybody, they were always asked the question, well, are you going to heaven or hell? And it was like, say the right sinner's prayer and check the box and you're going to heaven. And first of all, I had to believe some things that weren't true, because I had guys in the jails. I, I overheard this conversation, is what happened. The guy's saying, hey, if you stick around and afterwards pray the prayer with this guy, when you get out, you can still take out that other guy, but you're good. And it's like, okay, you're missing the whole point. It really, because the problem with the four spiritual laws, it makes it all about heaven and hell. I'm thankful I'm going to heaven. But God's approach present is saying, I want a relationship with you. I want us close. Now, because I want us close forever, it does include heaven. But the important part is it's a forever relationship. That's what you're saying yes to. Um, where his great achievement, the word poema, works of art. There's a lot about that, but it's, it's amazing because what he's saying is, it's not about us. He made an approach present, inviting us to relationship. And then he works among us corporately. This isn't just about working things in your life. His whole overtone in all of this book is, his great achievement is us corporately. As we walk in relationship with him, he does a great achievement among us in loving relationships. And it becomes his bragging point to all of creation, even the unseen parts. Okay. This is all tied together. I just have to say that as an act of faith to hope that it comes that way. In John 7, we have a Feast of Tabernacles. And it's tied to this because it's all based on God. Like Again, John writes in his letters, we only love because he loves us first. Here's great love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. Again, while we were enemies, he loves us. <clears throat> Feast of Tabernacles. A running theme throughout all scripture is God likes us to remember points of appreciation. I mean, he required it. He required lots of feasts. And, and the, the feast represented every emotion you could have. There were solemn feasts. There were feasts where you admitted wrongs. But the overall theme for most, theme, most feasts were celebration points of God providing things for you. Celebration points to remember what there is to appreciate in your life. When they even practiced Sabbath, when they even practiced Sabbath, uh, like the Passover, the big feast of Passover, like we, we do communion here as a group, we're going to do it today. And it's like our Passover. But the interesting thing is, they were never commanded to do Passover in a big temple. They were never commanded to do Passover in synagogue. They were commanded to do it in their home. And all the weekly Sabbaths, they were always told, you not only have a day of rest, but remind, talk of the things God has done for you. A running theme of, I want your families together and I want them to share stories of what God has done, stories of appreciation. And the festivals were huge celebrations of appreciation. So the Feast of Tabernacles, again, it's a, it's a festival where they would actually get wood and pieces of trees and make little shelters to live in. So instead of living in their homes, they live in these shelters. The reason why is to remember when they, when they as a people, traveled through the wilderness, Okay. Um, I think I've shared here before, the one time I was in Israel was during the, fe fest the 
Feast of Tabernacles. So they had little makeshift dwellings all over Jerusalem. It made it look just like Seattle. And so we had all these tents people were living in. But along with that, they had certain ceremonies. And one of them I want to talk about mainly, I want to get specifically to the water ceremony. In the wilderness, Moses struck a rock because they needed water, and water came out. He actually struck it twice, and there's a whole lesson with that, but I don't want to get into that. I want to get into the part is they were celebrating that God provided water in the wilderness. And what happened is, starting about 100, 150 years before Christ, they started doing this, this big ceremony where one of the priests would take a big pitcher and go and dip it, and he'd either dip it in the pool, well, he'd dip it either in the pool of Siloam or the spring that fed it. Different debate on where that is. It's a difference of like 30 feet. doesn't matter. I don't care which one they dipped it in. The point is they dip it in the water. And people would like recite passages from Psalms and from Isaiah about the water and about celebrating it. And then they'd all have a big parade and they're celebrating and he'd bring that pitcher of water and then he'd pour it into a basin that is on the left-hand side of the, of the main altar. And that basin would drain all over the altar. So they'd pour this water in and make a big deal of it. Because on the left side was the place they poured water, on the right side was the place they poured wine, but that'll be another lesson. Um, and this, I, I do have to say this because I still think it's so funny, how religious spirit crushes things. <clears throat> the, the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, the Sadducees, some of them were bent out of shape because nowhere does Moses command you do this celebration. He doesn't say not to, but he doesn't actually say to do it. So they were really ticked that they were even doing this celebration. So one time, about 100 years before Christ, one of the Sadducee leaders said, well, I'll carry the water. And then when he carried the water, he purposely poured the water on the ground by his feet, not into the, the little bowl. Because he wanted to make a point of this really wasn't planned by Moses. The reaction was people, because they carry food in the celebration, they all started throwing their food at him, and it led to a little riot. And from then on, they never let the Sadducees carry it. But it also started a new tradition because then what happened is the next year, and then they end up a, a regular habit. Not only would they not listen to the Sadducees, but when he carried the urine, the uh, big pitcher of water, and he was about to pour it into the bowl, they'd yell, raise your hand, raise your hand. And what they're telling him is, priest, because it's a big crowd, we can't see what you're doing. So just before you pour it in, raise your hand up so we know you're pouring the water in. So it's almost like, look, Sadducees, we're going to go bigger because your religious spirit's crushing our, our fun. <clears throat> so he'd raise his hand. Then it became, he'd raise his hand. They'd all start raising their hands, and they'd all just shout and go crazy. So CS Charismatics did not invent hand raising. <laughs> <laughs> and so he'd raise his hand and pour it, and it'd just be a crazy wild celebration. Awesome. I bring that up because Jesus, watch, I want to remind you, Again, this is a celebration to reinforce deep attachment, deep connection to God, remembering appreciation, appreciation for the water from the rock, and the whole overall festival is to remember who we are. Because we celebrate appreciation because we have found appreciation stories help people feel bonded to each other. <clears throat> so by the time you get down to verse 37, it's the last and greatest day of the festival. So this is where Jesus like really goes public. This is where Jesus' ministry takes a different step because he stayed kind of low-key. Like he admitted he was Messiah to people like the woman at the well. 
And then he did it in another place where there's a small group of, of disciples. He is yelling loud and bold at a really big time. So on the last and greatest day of the festival, some say that at this time of the festival, they would do the, the parade with the water and they'd march extra laps around the temple before they'd go pour the water in. He says in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were to later receive. The powerful thing is this statement he says, like this is a summation, but this idea of let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink, definitely the priests, definitely the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes would know what he's referring to, and probably the vast majority of the people. Because he's directly referring to a passage they're all very familiar with, because it's a huge promise that we touched on before. It's Isaiah 55. And Isaiah 55 prophecy goes like this. Hey, all who are thirsty, come to the water. Sound like, if you're thirsty, you want to come drink. You have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why pay money for something that will not nourish you? Why spend your hard-earned money on something that will not satisfy you? Listen carefully to me and eat what is nourishing. Enjoy fine food. I know I said this a month ago, but I think God really wants to emphasize this and really tie it to Jesus. On this big thing, when he starts shouting this at the temple, they know exactly he's referring to this. And there's a latter part of this that they also know it refers to him. In fact, Paul was so convinced in Acts 13, he explicitly says this refers to Jesus. <clears throat> a different version. Why should you weigh out your silver for what is not bread? Why give your labor for what gives not satisfaction? Hearken, hearken to me. He does say it twice. This is the literal. And eat what is good. Let your soul find pleasure in richness. Let your soul find pleasure. I, th I find this, I guess, ironic because we resist God at times, and it's really to our own hurt. Because, like, if we, if we did a poll in the room, we'd all agree God knows better than we do. Mm -hmm. God knows what's best for us. And he's giving this play of, like, I'm not talking about you groveling because I think you're a worm. I want you to wake up and realize you're laboring for things that won't satisfy you. I will give you riches of soul. Come to me. <clears throat> so our religious thinking gets in the way. I don't know about you, but I can think of a lot of things where I could look back and say, yeah, that was a hard time. That was rough at work. And then when I really think about what was really bothering me and what was really going on, I realized most of it was stuff God never told me to carry. When I felt overburdened in life and look back, when I got really burnt out and really rough, it's like, yeah, it wasn't that God wasn't there for me. I was trying to do stuff. He had no interest in me doing. And I pick on this one a lot because it, it really, I really feel, especially for the time we're in, God is big about this. We spend a lot of time planning, rehearsing conversations. We spend time punishing. And I bring this up because I'm in the same men's group I was in last time I brought this up. And my friend, my, one of my friends, he's still going through it. It's like, dude, you can have your life get better or you can have a life that sucks and you can blame people for it. You can't do both. You cannot blame people for what's wrong in your life and then have a good life. And I feel like God is saying to you, why labor for something that gives you no pleasure? Why hang on to this stuff and want to punish people for wrongs when that is not going to satisfy you 
if you come to me and learn to release it, you actually can have the better life. Make sense? And then the other thing is, at least in my life I've learned, but I've observed with others, there is community available to us if we will learn to relax and just enjoy being with people. But for whatever different reason, we suddenly start thinking we have to impress people. And as soon as we feel like we have to impress people, it gets weird. Being with people becomes a burden. Um, I wish I'd known this when my kids were little. I'm listening to a podcast and they talk about parenting. And, it, and it's a parent who's admitting they have a wide range between their kids. With their older kids, they didn't learn this. With their younger kids, they've taken to heart godly counsel that told them, never underestimate the power of just enjoying being with your kids. Because she shared, and I relate, so worried about doing it right, so worried about teaching them right, so worried about everything being right, that you didn't just enjoy being with your kids, and you were so worried about doing what's right, it caused it caused stumbling between you. Or it's not just like it caused bad things, but you missed out on a lot of joy. And it just reminds me, don't ever under, underestimate the power of just enjoying being with people. <clears throat> and we don't talk for that. <clears throat> Pay attention, come to me, listen so you can live. Then I will make an unconditional covenantal promise to you, just like the reliable covenantal promise I made to David. I just want to touch on this again. A lot of versions say it's an eternal promise. But the reason NET and the literal use the word unconditional is because eternal had different meanings. Some covenants with God, they were eternal, but they were conditional, meaning this will always bless you if you do your part. But this promise of a new covenant, he says, is like David's, and David's was not conditional. In fact, when you're David's end of his life, it actually explicitly says, when God's giving David this promise, he says, it is eternal. And even if your son, because what he's promising is that his throne will be eternal. That David's throne, because God is so pleased with him, his throne will be the permanent throne, and even the throne for the Messiah. And he says, even if Solomon does not obey me, doesn't matter. He will have to be punished and go through tough times, but my covenant is not conditional. It will still be eternal. And we saw that because Solomon went about as bad as bad can go. And God had to rip the kingdom from his hand. But even when he ripped it, he said, I'm taking the 10 tribes, but I'm leaving Benjamin and Judah with Solomon's son because of my unconditional promise to David. So he maintained an unconditional promise. And it says the Messiah is giving us the same promise. And that's, well, never mind, i got to move on. <clears throat> I gotta, it's so powerful because it's important. Because even when Jesus was doing this, they knew he referred to Isaiah 55, but the people of the day didn't really get what this covenant was. So later Paul explains it. But it's a powerful, unconditional promise of an invitation to a relationship that is not based on our behavior. It is not based on us keeping the law. <clears throat> Look, he's referring to David. I made him a witness to nations, a ruler and commander of nations. Look, you will some nations you did not previously know. Nations you did not, that did not previously know you will render you. So he's saying both ways. I'm summoning nations you don't know, and there are people that don't know you, and I'm going to draw them to you. 
They will run to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, bestows honor on you. Literally, what that says is, they're going to run to us on account of Yahweh, your Elohim, the Holy One of Israel, for he endows you with beauty. You are going to be attractive. Us corporately, we're going to be attractive. And to me, it's powerful because it's Yahweh Elohim. <coughs> In Genesis 1, the word for God is used 32 times, which is impressive because there's only 31 verses. It is always the word Elohim. Elohim, and it's even interesting because Elohim is actually the plural of Eloah. It's the plural. It's, it's God in plurality. It's the Trinity. So Elohim, and some say it also meant the multi, like the way the Jews saw it as it was the multifaceted provision of God. The God who provides all things. God the creator. God the one who creates what is good and declares it all good. The Elohim God and the Yahweh God. Because Yahweh, even though Yahweh is used earlier, we actually see a point mostly to when Moses intercounts, in, in, encounters God. Is that Yahweh, so Yahweh was often thought as the, the I guess you'd say the lawgiver, but he's the covenant maker. But he's saying it's the covenant maker and the creator and provider of everything you need. <clears throat> he endows us with beauty. He works among us in such a way that people see our relationships. And if we understand the grace of God in our lives, what kind of relationship he invites us to, and that it's grace-driven, not performance-driven, it changes how we walk with God. And it changes how we walk with each other and how much grace we give each other. And as that moves in our lives, it is beautiful and it attracts people. <clears throat> Seek the Lord while he makes himself available. Call to him while he's nearby. Okay, here's news. He's nearby now. He's always nearby. It's always about the now. No matter what you did 10 minutes ago, he's nearby now. He's always now. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. The way DJ, I, when I first saw the bracelet WWJD, it annoyed me. Because it was, what would Jesus do? But it makes it sound like we have to figure out what Jesus would do and go do it. It makes it sound like he's not here. I wish they'd put in W-A-Y-D-J. What are you doing, Jesus? Because God never tells me I have to figure it out. I can just ask him. What are you doing, Jesus? And the whole idea is we don't want to settle for our own way. I add this last part because this is the, the feeling I have. Don't settle for business relationships. I did take this to heart. Partly, I, did, I didn't have a choice. God miraculously put me in jobs where I had no clue what I was doing. So I had to daily, really rely, like, God, you, I'm only in this job because you put me here. You better show me what we're supposed to do. And I'm very thankful he did. Um, it worked well at Humboldt. It worked in our business. It worked teaching. It worked when I was a director. And I don't, wanna, I don't want to not appreciate that. I appreciate that he spoke and it worked. But I really was incomplete in this. Because what I didn't realize, and it took me like over 20 years to figure this out or to have this revealed to me, my walk with him was businesslike. I heard his voice every day, but it was like, well, Master, what do you want me to do so I can go be a servant? <clears throat> God doesn't want just that kind of relationship. Jesus revealed the Father, revealed God as a good Father. And fathers don't have just business relationships with kids. Jesus, 
fully aware. In fact, even while he's telling the disciples, you're going to all flake on me, he says, you're going to all flake out, but here, I have called you friends. Not servants, friends. And remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Because within about 12 hours, you're going to unchoose me. And if it was based on you, we'd be done. But it's not based on you. I chose you. And, and to me, my, my life really wasn't until my 40s. It started to change when I realized God wanted me to give up trying to do things for him and instead learn to do all things with him. And it makes a difference because one is connection. The other is servitude. <clears throat> The ungodly need to abandon their lifestyle and sinful people their plans. Now, before you think it means all those godly people out there, <clears throat> Jesus said in John, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what he is speaking. The model Jesus gave us is always rely on his plans, not ours. So what he's saying is don't get busy with your own plans, whether they look good or bad. They should return to the Lord. He will show mercy to them and to their God, for he will freely forgive them. Indeed, my plans are not like your plans. My deeds are not like your deeds, says the Lord. For just as the sky is higher than the earth, so my deeds are superior to your deeds and my plans superior to your plans. It's a joy to rely on him because he knows what's really going on when we have, don't have a clue. The rest of it, I'm, I'm not going over, but it's basically just talking about how just like the rains water the field and you're sure that you're going to get a result of it, God's word never fails. And he promises a joyful life. But what I want to do here, because I'm going to do this as part of communion, to hear from God doesn't take six years of Bible school. Doesn't take somehow being spiritual over anybody else. Really hearing from God takes humility, and it takes some skills that we can develop, all right? <clears throat> um, it's rare. Maybe it happens, but I, I have not met a guitar player yet that just instantly picked up a guitar and played. They had to practice things. They had to practice things that were kind of mechanical. You know, like you watch guys that can freestyle play, but the ones I've known, they said, yeah, but I learned the basics is how I learned and got good enough to freestyle. <clears throat> a humility that is willing to learn skill sets relationship ones. God invites us to a crazy close intimacy and it is not wrong. It is not being, you know, like some people think, well, spirit-led means I, I get this power and God comes over me and now I'm like some superstar that preaches to crowds of 20,000. First of all, I'm not even sure preaching to 20,000 is a good thing, but that's another thing. But, <clears throat> I'm trying to make, I'm struggling for words for a minute. It's not about performance. God loves us unconditionally. But there are skills we can develop, we can get better at, we can practice. And one of the big ones is how to become quiet when life has chaos. How can we be quiet when other people are screaming? And one of the things that really feeds this is to have stories of appreciation that come to mind quickly. But before they come to mind quickly, we often have to practice them and label them. This is just the way our brains work. So we're going to do that now. Because <clears throat> I want us to see God has given us an approach gift. We are in relationship with him, and that is not fragile. It's not up to us to maintain it. 
but to develop an awareness of his presence where we start hearing his voice all through the day and we recognize when it's his voice. There are things we do that can help that. And one of the big ones is appreciation. <clears throat> There's a therapist who has worked in the mission field and he's done amazing things. And uh, God has done amazing things. And in these rough missionary places of where they do their mission work, they have whole villages that have been through crazy trauma, like just heartbreaking trauma. And they, what he taught them was not only to come to Jesus, but how to practice with Jesus a memory of when Jesus is with you. <clears throat> and then in that connection, they bring the presence of Jesus into the memories of the trauma. His line that I steal all the time is, never go into a memory without Jesus with you. It's a dangerous place. <clears throat> but it's amazing what they have done. And they started with something that seemed mechanical. And this may seem mechanical to you, but it works. Because <clears throat> what I want to do is before we do communion, and that's why you have paper, that's why you have a pen, and we're not going to spend a lot of time because it doesn't take a, long, a lot of time. But with the paper that you have somewhere that's on different seats near you, and the pen, I just want us before communion to practice our own appreciation conversation with God. So for communion, we're going to have like a minute of quiet, and I want you to just think of anything that you can appreciate when was the last time you felt deep connection? And ask God to bring it to you. Ask God to bring it to your mind a time when you really enjoy deep connection. It could be a family. It could be friends. It could be you alone with him. Um, but a lot of them are with people because God wants us in community. And I want you in this minute to really go into detail. Like write down notes of when was it? Was it daytime? Was it nighttime? Was it during a meal? What were you doing? Who was there with you? And what were you were feeling? I know for guys, it sometimes it's awkward to talk about feeling. I won't go to prove my case, but I've worked in jail ministries in the business world. I've worked talking about feelings is not weakness. Okay, I've seen guys that they come off like they're really super tough, and then I get as I work on it, it's all facade. They don't know how to deal with a hard emotion if their life depended on it. Okay, everybody with me? Because what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a minute of quiet right now. And I just want you to write down the memory God brings to you. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.